Whiskey? Cigars? Come, Daniel. Everybody knows you're supposed to drink beer and eat pretzels. Unless you're being serious. Do serious gamers drink whiskey and smoke cigars? I'm in a quandary. Hey there, welcome to Bandit's Keep. I'm Daniel. I'm hanging out on my front porch here. Got some guys working on the house, so I'm sorry if you hear some noise in the background, but uh, <laughs> we got an interesting episode today. Uh, we've got a bunch of Collins, uh, a new caller, that John. Uh, we've got uh, Jason from Nerds Up Variety Cast. We've got Joe Rector from Sightless. And uh, also Taylor, who you've already heard from Third Square Ring. So, in addition to that, I'm going to talk a little bit about. Um, you know, how we interpret rules and how maybe how we should interpret, interpret rules. Maybe we can get some feedback on that. And also an unboxing. So uh, put on your seatbelt, grab yourself some popcorn, and let's do this. Okay, so we got a little unboxing going on here. I'm uh, out on my porch on this beautiful, I guess, early fall day. Um, and I have a box here from, looks like Goodman Games. They have the most beautiful return stickers, so I always hate throwing these boxes away. But... Uh, it is a brown cardboard box. It's uh, about 10 by 13, and we're looking at uh, five. So, decent sized box. Pretty sure I know what's in here. Kickstart I did recently. I'm gonna open this up with my Tinker Swiss Army knife. This is the one that I normally keep uh, in my backpack. Has a little bit of paracord attached to it. You never know when you're gonna need paracord. Oh, yes. Ooh, this is quite a goodie box here. So, kind of nestled in some bubble wrap. I see right on top. Ooh, wow. These are the DC Blankmar Luck Tokens. A whole sleeve of them. They kind of look like poker chips, basically. But they are in various colors. Um, and they are used uh, for luck, which is... Uh, they use, like, fleeting luck in DC Blankmar, if I believe. That's what you're going to use that for. Right on top, we've got the... Goodman Games Gazette, which is kind of a, uh, has the look of like a little local newspaper, and it's talking about, uh, oh, Empire of the East, uh, Hero's Journey, and a funnel, the elephant, so I see a lot of different little articles in here, these are always fun, so I will definitely read that, now let's get to it, so this was from The Greatest Thieves in Lankmar, which is, uh, was a tournament, oh, maybe two years ago, I can't remember now, um, We've got a bunch of scoring sheets. They seem to be enclosed here. There's a player pack, basically. We've got scoring sheets and probably character records, I'm guessing. Let's see what's in here. All the extra supplies you need to run the Greatest Thieves and Lankmar tournament includes five printed player packs and three extra sets of printed scoring sheets. You must own the Greatest Thieves and Lankmar box set in order to use this item. Well, let's see what's next. Oh, wouldn't you know it? Oh, wow, this is heavy. The Greatest Thieves in Lankmar, a level three adventure. Authorized by the state of Fritz Lieber or Liber. Oh wow, this is a wow! It's a heavy box. It's this is a heavy box set. It looks like what you would imagine for a normal box. It's not super thick or anything. It's just heavy. Um, on the cover, it's kind of got like a bluish versus orange tone. There is a uh, let's see, a lady. She's got she's drawing a sword, and she's got an amulet around her neck. There seems to be some magic emanating from that's going up into the sky where we can see lots of other, uh, it's joining a bunch of other magic. Um, there is what is, I'm guessing, a Fawford-type uh, bearded barbarian with a sword running towards her. 
and up above, further up on the roofs, there's a uh, another uh, hooded figure. I'm assuming this is taking place on the rooftops. If I remember right, this is the way this thing works. Inside this box, you will find a 68-page booklet containing the adventure, a 20-page book of player handouts, a 16-page uh, player pack, a 48-page judges pack, a 12-page scoring sheet, die-cut luck tokens for using fleeting luck at the table. So I think that's, I wouldn't use the die-cut ones. I'll use the, uh, the ones I got here. Um, four pages of die-cut rooftop uh, chase tokens, a huge 44-inch long rooftop chase map to simulate the chase across the rooftops of Blankmar, plus Dicing with Death, a complete standalone bonus adventure designed to be deployed when characters die in the main adventure. <laughs> when? When characters die in the main adventure. So that's pretty awesome. Is that basically the whole set? Yeah, so I went in full full kit with these. Usually when I back a Goodman Games thing, I just go for the best, you know, the, the best package they have because they always add all kinds of awesome extras. Um, so yeah, I'm looking forward to playing this. I didn't play in the actual tournament. I think I was at that Gen Con or wherever it was at, but I just didn't... Uh, been playing it. Uh, I've never actually done a tournament at a uh, convention. I don't know if anybody listening has. If you have, Colin, I'd love to hear about it. Um, or if anybody else booked to back this Kickstarter. Or if you didn't back it uh, and you want to play in it, let me know because maybe we'll figure out if we can play this online. Um, I don't know how it'd work online, but I bet you it would. I know they did send PDFs and stuff, um, you know, in, when this first came out. Oh, and of course, there's a digital download code inside. If you wanted to buy this, it, the box set itself is 60 bucks. Looks like the uh, this extra player pack stuff, the tournament stuff, is twenty bucks, and I don't know if these tokens have a price on it. Whoa, forty dollars for the tokens! But you know, hey, there's forty of them there, so a buck a piece. That's not too bad when you think about it. These are going to be fun. I actually made some, found a place that did poker chips, and I made some bandits keep poker chips. So if you ever encounter me at one of the uh, various cons that I'll be running games at and you play in my game, you will get a Bandit's Keep Poker Trip. So make sure you hit me up if you see me there. Uh, until next time. Actually, I have another big uh, thing to unbox. I keep teasing it, but uh, basically I don't want to open it until I have time to go through it. So <laughs> that one's sitting for a bit. But uh, all right, cool. Thanks. For the calls, I just wanted to uh, maybe pose a question. I feel like I'm doing a Jason here um, to see if we can get some some conversation going here. So there's, there was a little back and forth on the Audio Dungeon Discord, um, and I've had inter, uh, you know interactions like this before, where it seems to me that people read a rule very specifically and then imagine a scene with that rule playing out exactly as they believe it's written. Uh, oftentimes, in my opinion, they are not reading the rule correctly anyways, but I won't get into that. Um, but what I will say is that then they say, well, the game is this because this. The game is broken because, you know, you can do this. The game is uh, awesome because this works out like this. This is, you know, 5e is boring because everything's balanced. OSR games are broken because everything's not balanced. Uh, Vancian magic sucks because the wizard can only cast one spell a day. You know, uh, DCC magic is too, doesn't make sense because the, uh, you know, they can cast too many spells a day. Whatever you want to say there, right? Uh, but I wonder, you know, I wonder like if we actually think when we, when we look at these rules, we make this, these, uh, comments and I, I do it as well. Uh, if, if we need to like step back for a second and think about the human, uh, interaction, 
right? Maybe this comes down to the, the rulings, uh, not rules or the rule zero or whatever you want to call these things. Uh, but, you know, when something is rolled on a random table or something is said in a module or in a rule set, you've got to, I think, as a dungeon master or even as a player, right, you've got to look at that thing. And I'm not going to say think realistically because obviously I'm playing fantasy games, but you've got to think like in within the scope of the world, right? Like how would this actually play out, right? Uh, the example a lot of people give is, you know, if you're wandering around, well, first of all, the example a lot of people give that is not accurate, but and I'll tell you why in a second, is that you're a first level party and you're wandering around, uh, you know, you're playing BX because everybody's playing OSC now. You know, uh, Gavin did an amazing job with OSC, made beautiful books, and everybody's playing it. And you're wandering around as a first level party and the DM rules a random encounter of a dragon. So now they say, well, you know, um, We've got to roll for surprise. Well, I mean, it's a dragon. <laughs> I, it could be. In what way would a dragon surprise a huge dragon? How is it going to surprise this first level party? If you want to use the surprise mechanic there, you can. Uh, although clearly in the book it says, although less clearly in OSC, more clearly in BX, it says you don't use surprise unless somebody can be surprised. So you've got this giant dragon. It, you know, if you imagine the area around the dragon's lair is going to be, uh, you know, probably not have animals around. It's going to feel different. There's going to be a smell. Uh, you know, a dragon is going to leave sign that it is there. So, in my opinion, it would be very difficult for a dragon to surprise a party unless, as some people have seemed to have these stories from when they were kids rolling up a random dragon in a 10-foot square room and you open the door. I'd be surprised by that. But... You know, a dragon is not going to generally warrant a surprise check. Also, they're a first-level party. And if you are running a game and you do not want the first-level party to be slaughtered by the dragon, you still have options, right? Even if the dragon surprises, let's say you want to use that. You're going to roll your distance, and you're going to think to yourself, okay, what is the deal with this dragon? Why is it here? You could just take the really quick, which I think is often what people do, uh, the, especially people who played more modern games where you, XP is for fighting and balance encounters are more common. They're going to say, well, the dragon's going to try to eat the PCs because why wouldn't the dragon eat the PCs? Well, I don't know. I mean, th there's lots of animals that won't just eat you if they see you. That's why people can go on safari and get real close to the lions, right? Lions don't just eat people unless they're hungry, you know, uh, Somebody who's been on a safari or knows more about animals is going to comment there, so I'll wait for that. But, um, you know, the dragon might not be hungry, right? It might just be scoping around. It might scare the party off. It might land and talk to the party if it's an intelligent dragon, right? Um, it might ask the party for help or enslave the party to do uh, projects for it or whatever. There's lots of things a dragon can do besides just killing the party. Now, the reason why I said in BX that's wrong, <laughs> anyways, is that it pretty clearly states in the B, remember B, there's B and then there's X, that overland travel, expert adventures are meant for higher level characters. So you should not be wandering around the wilderness or have your first level party wandering around the wilderness and running into dragons. They should be into the expert book by then. So the party, your average party level should be around four. Now you've got five or six fourth level characters. There's a dragon. That changes everything, Right. It still might be a devastating encounter. It still might kill everybody. You know, dragon's still going to be tough, but it's not that ridiculous encounter that people seem to imagine happening all the time. Now, I have not read OSE 
cover to cover. I bought it because they're beautiful books, and I'm one of those people that has beautiful books on my shelf. I pick up my BX books when I run, so maybe in OSE, it is implied that first-level characters should be wandering around. But in BX, so the actual game that people are saying was broken and needed to be fixed, right, it pretty clearly says you shouldn't be doing that. Now, that being said, if you go back to OD&D, you can wander around at first level. So OD&D, yeah, you could have run into a dragon and done all that stuff. That's why I went through that whole scenario. Uh, but in BX specifically, because that's the game that people are often referring to in OSC, you should not be running into a dragon uh, on first level. Also, if you look at the... So now if we look at the wandering monsters that are uh, appropriate, because I think another uh, thing people... I think the original conversation came up because of a carrion crawler. Carrion crawlers are not seen as wandering monsters until, guess what? What level? The third level of the dungeon. Which means that, again, a first-level party should not be encountering a carrion crawler as a wandering monster. It would be incredibly rare for that to happen unless they decide to go down the third level of the dungeon. So now you've got third-level characters. And yes, they can still die pretty easily from a carrion crawler, but they've almost certainly got henchmen. They've got magic items. They are not just these like very minimal hit point uh, characters that are just going to die instantly with this carrion crawler. Carrion crawler is only three hit dice. You've got, you know, again, a third-level magic user. Uh, you know, which obviously you could use a sleep spell, it would take it out. You've got, uh, you know, you've got uh, third level fighters, which are going to be powerful, most likely with magic swords and stuff. You've got arrows, you've got all kinds of goodies. So, again, we're looking at a monster going, oh, well, that monster is OP, or that monster doesn't make sense because it will just kill a party because it has this attack. But we're not putting into context when that monster will be used, even by the rules. Forget about just using common sense if you do. If you just want to say, well, you shouldn't have to use common sense. You know, I mean, common sense tells you not to put a monster like that against a low-level party, unless you want them to get wiped out, you know? In fact, a good way to use a carrion crawler would be to have them up on maybe the second level of the dungeon uh, devouring a party that they paralyzed, right? And then the player characters can make a choice. Okay, what the heck? You know, the first time they see this, then they can learn that it's powerful. This is where telegraphing comes in. Telegraphing is so important, and granted, I don't think the rule books really talk about that that much, but that's what you learn as you play. If you're going to play in a game that is not balanced, you need to telegraph. So that's the deal. Like, that's the question I have, I guess. I mean, am I wrong? Are you, do, do people, do you, do you, should the rules stand by themselves without any kind of common sense, uh, you know, being applied to the moral world relationship? Should you be able to just pick a rule up out of the book and run it and be like, if this doesn't work, the game's broken? Is that a fair assessment of games to do that? Or do we need to take into account that how these things are more, more are designed really to work? You know, is that more of a fair, if we're talking fair, uh, assessment of a game? So, I don't know. Let me know what you guys think. Uh, I could be completely wrong. Anyways, let's get into a whole bunch of calls. Hey Daniel, Jason here. I hope I'm not frustrating you too much, but I'm calling another response to your podcast in, but it's a response to your YouTube videos because I have the YouTube subscription. I can download the videos to my phone and listen to your videos while I drive down the road because I don't have a lot of time to watch YouTube. Anyhow, you're starting a D&D campaign video is really great, really enjoyed it, and I would love to start a game that way, and I pretty much agree with all the points you make in that video. The problem I have is anything I get to run anymore tends to be the four to six session short game 
format. So I'm running short mini campaigns or basically just adventures, right? The Cyberpunk 2020 game that you're going to be in is a great example of that. So because I'm we're doing a short game that it's going to last four to six sessions, I am going to do the thing where you guys start all knowing each other. Just because that way we'll have more time. To, we're not spending a session getting to meet each other and then introduce the threat. And You know, if I was playing a longer-term game, I would definitely do it the way you said. But because I'm stuck doing a short-term game, because that Thursday night group, we rotate GMs and try new systems or different systems, I, I am starting you guys together there. But I realize there's a difference between a six-session game and a year-long campaign, right? So thank you so much for your YouTube videos. Again, I'm sorry I'm responding in the wrong format, but I, I figure some feedback's better than none. So there you go. Thanks, Jason. Yeah, I, I uh, don't care where you respond back. I think it's awesome that we're having this communication. Um, yeah, you know, there's different ways to start, right? And, and any way that you can do it is right. And I have definitely done that where I'm like, okay, I'm going to run uh, four sessions and we make it work that way. And it's an arc and we, you know, people know each other or they do whatever. And that's cool. It all works. Out. It all works out as long as we can play, right? As long as we can play, there's no really wrong way to do it. I don't know, Daniel. Some of the most fun I've had is playing characters with suboptimal stats, even suboptimal prime st stats. So I, I, I definitely disagree with the idea that playing a character that's not good at their profession is not playing the game. Now, that might be the fact of 5th edition, but or WotC D&D, but I don't play those games because... Well, obviously, they're, you know, gatekeeping and not letting people play suboptimal characters. They don't want you to play real people. They just want you to play superheroes. You know, if I want to play superheroes, I'll play TSR Marvel superheroes, right? But, you know, I, I, I don't know. I have a problem with the idea that you're playing the game wrong by playing a weak fighter or something. I, I, I think you can have just as much fun doing that. I think I also disagree that, about the idea of incentives. Now, a lot of this depends on the game. And Arlen's obviously mainly talking about D20 fantasy games. But when we look at, like, Traveler, at least real Traveler, where you die in character creation, not this kitty modern Traveler, well, you don't have any incentives other than get stuff, right? Get power, get stuff, make political allies. But you don't have any mechanical incentives in Traveler because your characters don't advance. Okay, if you're on a trip for a year, you might get like a point in one skill or something. But effectively, you don't advance. So there is no mechanical incentive in Traveler. Does that mean it's not an RPG? Of course not. That's silly. So Arlen's arguments are valid probably for D20 fantasy RPGs, but I seriously don't think they... Sorry, I kind of came across broken and stupid at the end there. I don't think those arguments are valid for a myriad of other games that don't prioritize mechanical incentives for getting better. There are a hell of a lot of games out there that don't care if you get better. You know, you start off as big damn heroes, and yeah, you can increase a little bit, but it doesn't really matter, right? Because the key is to have fun. 
So I, I really think it depends on the game. So Ireland's not wrong, but I do not think that is a uniform, consistent approach across all role-playing games. So I, I think it just depends what you're looking for. If I was in a group that only wanted to play optimized characters, play the game that Arlen's talking about, I'd find a different group. Yeah, I think that the key statement that you made there, a key word in the statement you made, is only. <laughs> see, from, so from my point of view, I can see what Arlen's saying. And he made, I think, a pretty convincing argument that if the game is to get experience points, if the game is to increase your character's uh, skill and get levels, if the game is to uh, get a stronghold, then you are not, quote, playing the game if you don't in, in, uh, involve yourself with that. I mean, sure, you're playing a game. You might not be playing the game. So if in Traveler, the incentive is that you fly around and bring stuff from place to place. I'm sorry, I never played traditional travelers. I don't know. So if it's you build alliances through politics, if you get bigger spaceships, if you um, get rich, if you do those things, right, you are in goal, you are playing the game. If the game of traveler involves, you know, if you, if you advance and traveler on some level, what you need to do is uh, move freight from planet to planet and get bigger ships and uh, get, you know, contracts but you make a character and then you just go to the bar in town and get in fistfights with people and that doesn't advance your character at all and they can never do anything better because they don't do the things that it takes to advance in that game system, then you're not really engaging with or playing, if you want to use that terminology, or maybe he did, I can't remember now, the game. So I think that was the point. Uh, if I've got a mistake, I mean, I don't want to put words in Arlen's mouth, he can answer. But uh, that's the part that I kind of agreed with that I understood was that, yeah, if you are, if you look at a game and the game is this, the game is to go from point A to point B. If you do not engage with that part, then you're probably not actually playing the game, right? You could take a chess board with all the pieces on it and play it like it's checkers, but then you're not playing chess, you're playing checkers, right? Even if you're not, even if you have all the pieces. So if you are playing Traveler and the point is to establish trade routes and you sit at the bar and drink, you're not engaging with Traveler, you're engaging with a different RPG that just happens to be using the stats of Traveler. If you are playing Pathfinder and you're not doing adventure paths and killing monsters or whatever you do at Pathfinder, or if you're not playing OD&D or you're playing OD&D and you're not like going into deep dungeons and trying to pull loads of treasure up to level up so you can then you know build a stronghold, then you're not fully engaging with the system or the game. And I think that's the part that, I mean, I think that's, part at least part of the point that Arlen was making at least that's what I took from it and that's what I kind of agree with does that mean that you always need to do that to have fun absolutely not does that mean every game has the exact same thing no of course like I said in some games if you start off as if you're playing Marvel superheroes right and you start off as the thing and you're you know playing in a, in a game well you know when the Fantastic Four goes to stop uh, Doctor Doom right if you don't engage with <laughs> fighting bad guys and instead you go play poker although if you're the thing you might just go play poker but you know what I'm saying then you're not engaging you're not being a superhero you're not playing that game in a sense you're playing a game but not that game that's kind of how I took it um, that being said I think I don't think there is a wrong bad way just like I think we all feel you know you do what you want to do 
and you can engage in different games in different ways. I mean, I am very uh, well known in my, the circles I play with to be the person that hardly engages in any combat, but you will go to many forums and they will tell you that D&D is a game that's about fighting, and I don't typically try to fight when I'm a player. So, you know, maybe I'm not playing D&D. Who really knows? <laughs> in any case, I'm having fun, and my players are having fun, so I think we're all playing something. Hey, Daniel, listening to your uh, latest episode, the Jason show with a hint of Joe. And yeah, like like I said to you on Discord, a, a dash of Joe is all anyone ever, ever, ever needs. But I, I, I got a question for you, man. I, 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 I'm calling before the episode ends because that's how we do it. Uh, you're talking right now about how in 5e you don't really like it because if you're playing or character with bad stats you're going to fail more often than not and that's not fun for you but yet you love games like bx and od and d where especially in the beginning you fail much more than you succeed so right <laughs> like it doesn't matter what your stats are in bx you're gonna fail at first a lot more often than you're gonna succeed so i don't know man what's it all about dude peace out so this is a great question, and I think there's two points here that I'd like to make. Uh, number one is that um, expectations, right? The expectation when you're playing a game of 5th edition, for most people around the table, and for most people playing it, is that you are heroes, and that you will triumph and succeed. Look at the artwork there, jumping 15 feet in the air, smashing dragons in the face with axes, stuff like that, right? So. Uh, the expectation is that you'll succeed in 5e, which means that when you fail, uh, it's it's not as uh, rewarding, we'll say. Also, I don't think that you fail as much in BX as you might think, or at least not at my table, because my way of playing these kind of simple, we'll call them old school, I don't even know, well, BX definitely is old school, right? <laughs> uh, games is that you should really only be rolling um, if it, you have to. And what I mean by that is that those thieves skills, all the other things that people have, you should not be rolling on the, those tables unless you just can't explain in character or in, in world how you're doing something. You don't need to roll a climb check if you can get a rope secured and you go down the rope, right? You don't need to, to uh, roll a hiding check if it's very clear that you can step into a dark room when the guards, you know, let's say human guards don't have intervision. Are, are walking by with torch lit, right? You don't really need to roll for that. Uh, I, in my game, if you come up with a good idea, you don't roll for it. Uh, you, the rolling is only when uh, these things are in question. So I guess what I would say there is that, yes, I am saying two different things <laughs> because I think there's two different play styles. I, I, you, and again, I've said this before, you can play 5e where you don't roll much. And in fact, when I run 5e, that's how I generally do it. But as was said, oh, I can't remember now. I believe, I believe it was BJ, Wizards of the Coast, did a uh, you know a survey or whatever, and they found that people like to roll dice. So the game of Fifth Edition is designed so that lots and lots of dice are rolled, and that you will succeed most of the time. The older games, OD and D, uh, BX, they are designed so that you only roll the dice when you absolutely have to, and the chance of you succeeding is not high, which is why you only roll the dice when you absolutely have to. You want to avoid rolling dice if you can. And that's kind of my uh, my reasoning, whether or not that logic makes any sense. You know, who really knows? Hey, Daniel, great episode. Really enjoyed it. 
And yeah, I definitely see where you're going with chain mail, and I don't disagree with that. I think, well, I'll let you lay it out in your future episode, but definitely when you hit hero and superhero level, you're a freaking Conan. It, it it matches the fiction. It really does. And it lets you fight the different, you know, with the three different combat systems and everything else. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Now, I think Chainmail with your hack can also do it. But the problem is now you have magic and you have magic that's not as dangerous and deadly. You, you almost need DCC magic mixed in with Chainmail. Now you're getting complicated, but... I'm with you. Anyway, great episode. I, I'm not going to try to defend usage dice because you're, you're not wrong. So I will talk to you later. Okay, so I'm definitely going to... I'm catching up on these uh, these weekly call-ins. Thanks, everybody, for calling in, of course. And I will, hopefully, in the very next episode, it shouldn't be too long, I'm just going to kind of go over my overview of why Chainmail, in case you missed the last one, uh, is probably the best system that I can think of for swords and sorcery and the reason why I think that. Um, so, uh, yeah, we'll look forward to that. Talking about characters who are optimized, obviously that's what we want. It should be like Lake Wobegon, where everyone's above average. Talking about optimized characters again, Hex Press was talking about the point of characters who, in the old school, were significantly more powerful than average just through luck of rolling great attributes. If you, in the old days, if you rolled a paladin or a ranger or a monk, you were a more powerful character. But that brings up the point that a big part of role-playing is the GM challenging characters based on their individual abilities. If you have a more powerful character, the GM and the party should have higher expectations of you. And if you have a character who's below average, the GM should give you plenty of opportunities to let your role-playing skills win the day rather than your attribute roles. Continuing that thought, search for Chances of rolling up characters for classes in 1st edition Dungeons and Dragons on Stack Exchange. It gives percentages of getting different characters all the way up through AD&D 2nd edition. And it's very interesting to see just how rare some of these character classes should be. And that implies to me, how much higher the expectations for them should be. Okay, that was John Cantor. I hope you're pronouncing your last name correctly. Thanks, John, for calling in. Um, those are really good points. And actually, I don't know that they butt up against anything that anybody's saying, so I think they're kind of coming from another direction, right? If if I want to argue, argue, which I love to do, against, let's say, the things that, let's say, Joe's been talking about or Arlen to a, to a certain level of uh, optimization, I would say that I could use what you're saying there to say there should be it should be rare that characters are really really powerful. So you shouldn't optimize because player characters should be just barely above. And these like supersonic characters that they're defining every PC to be are not the norm for adventurers, but the rare adventurer. So, or you could say, um, or they could say, well, yeah, see, these are the heroes, right? <laughs> 
You know, that's what you got to be, right? You want to be that guy. But what I think is the most interesting of what you're talking about there is that the idea of expectation, right? And I don't think you're wrong. I think I actually agree with you. So for instance, I'm playing uh, in an OD&D game currently, and I have a cleric uh, who rolled a four charisma. So now this is a terribly uh, non-charismatic character. And what I do is I occasionally, uh, hopefully not to the detriment of the party, uh, act out in a way. What I've decided is my four charisma represents the fact that he has no, um, no filter, as they say. So he'll just say things as soon as they come to his mind. So typically now the party's getting used to that. So they make sure they don't discuss anything kind of private. With, you know, like they don't just whisper in front of much people. They pull me to the side. Um, but also when we had an idea, like my character had an idea, cause he's not unintelligent that we should capture some orcs. Luckily I did not speak the orc language. So one of the characters with a higher charisma did, and we were able to actually get the orcs on our side. Um, cause I'm not dumb, right? I'm just not a good leader. So I'm using my player skill to, to try to manipulate the game to get stronger in the game, but I'm minimizing my character's bad attribute by just not being the person that talks to the people. Because I think, I mean, sure. There, if maybe if I had a low wisdom and a low charisma, I might not understand that people are bouncing off me. I mean, I've definitely met people like that before, uh, but I think that because I have a high wisdom, being a cleric, you know, relatively high. I think that's my highest stat, it's like thirteen. But anyways, uh, I understand that like I'm not a great leader of men. I'm a follower with good ideas, so I'm, I've taken that to the thing. But what I think is really, and of course, the DM has been great letting us role play like that, right, and not being like, well, no, it was your idea, so you are the one that has to roll. It's like, no, we're going to discuss it, and then the, the character with the high charisma is going to go in there and do it. And I think that's that's that should be the norm. I don't think that's uh, – I think probably most people play that way. But on the other end, yeah, like when you, if you roll that paladin in first edition D&D – and I'm curious. I'm going to check out that site you're talking about because I wonder how they're doing the rolling because I think so many people think that AD&D people roll 3D6 down the line, and – People really didn't do that. It says right in the DMG not to do that. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't say you can't do it, but it basically says you shouldn't. Um, so I'm curious what they're basing their numbers on. But if you do roll that paladin who has all those extra powers, protection from evil and the, you know, uh, whatever they have, uh, you know, uh, healing and, uh, you know, just they're awesome, right? Yeah. You should not be the, be like, all right, I'm going to stay in the back of the party and only come forward. No, you should be boldly running into the combat. You should be the leader of the party. You should use those skills because you got them. So even if they don't actually matter as much, let's say in fifth edition, where there's not really charisma checks so much. Um, although I do see, you know, again, a lot of people still use it that way. I'm curious when that started. I mean, I'm not, again, even though I played back in the day as it would be, I didn't, uh, I had a huge gap in between. So like, I don't know when people started like using like charisma checks every time they encountered somebody to talk about it. Reaction rules, yes, because I'm from a BX background, but you know, this, this idea that like your charisma was constantly checked, um, against something to persuade people or whatever, right? We usually just role played that out and that, that comes down to the, not having to worry about the stats being high. Right. So now the question becomes, what if you roll up a low attribute character and you're a new player or not experienced or not a great role player, however you want to say it, I don't mean that in a negative way. Like, does the game suck for you? I mean, I, I you know, th there is that I'm kind of playing devil's advocate here, but I really like this idea. I like this idea that like, if you do roll a high attribute character in a game that they are more rare, you really need to play that up and be the hero. And that's tell people how to play, but I think that is important and something I will definitely keep in mind. Um, although I'm, I often play the character that runs in Ed, so maybe I'm, maybe I'm not very smart. But anyways, uh, I, I think, but I have definitely seen people play characters in the heavy plate armor and like, 
the hardest one to hit in the party, and they're just like, oh, you know, guys, maybe we shouldn't fight those things. No, hell no. You're powerful. You can kick ass. You should be up there doing it. So so I like that. I'm not sure if that's what you're saying, John, but <laughs> that's what I got from it. Um, thanks for calling. I think that was your first time calling, so uh, awesome. Looking forward to more calls from you. I should also point out that I have no idea what Wobadon is. So, uh... Yo, Daniel, so right now in the episode, you asked the question, is Cyberpunk 2020 really punk because it has so many rules? And to that, I say, yes, it absolutely is punk. Uh, when Mike Pondsmith and his team were putting the game together, they interviewed a lot of cops and soldiers and other people that have been in actual firefights because they were trying to make the uh, the combat the gunfights as deadly as they are in real life and they were trying to get as close to realistic quote unquote as they possibly could in a role-playing game because you are living on the edge and that is super punk one shot can take you out and that is super punk and in order to do that you need some rules for tactics otherwise it's just some wibbly wobbly dm fiat garbage and that doesn't work in a cyberpunk game peace out Ah, so it's clear that the man has gotten to Jill Richter, convincing him that the rules make you more punk. The true punks had me no rules. They play OD&D. But seriously, though, the, uh, <laughs> the cyberpunk combat system, uh, Friday Night Firefights, looks really, really cool and deadly. So I'm definitely looking forward to uh, being blown to bits by the inhale of uh, machine gun fire. Uh, should be fun. By all means, we should be tracking things like arrows individually. And that, of course, means that we're going to want to reuse as many as possible. So we're going to have to roll for every arrow we fire to see where it went, whether it was damaged, whether it can be repaired. So that's what we want role-playing to be. Definitely note a little bit of sarcasm there, and I fully appreciate it. Uh, personally, I do not allow people to recollect arrows. I don't think it's realistic, and I also think, like I said, it's boring. If I am going to allow it, uh, I usually just make a simple dice roll. I don't roll for every arrow. That just seems, again, there's a compromise, right? There's not uh, one answer that is, you know, extremist point of view, which I know you're you're being sarcastic in order to kind of <laughs> go against my extremist point of view the other direction. As far as the spell thing, nope, I hate it. I don't like it. I don't like it at all. I do not like the idea that as you get higher level in spells, you can cast them less. Why would that means a high level magic user is going to be more likely to throw his fireball only once, right? But you'll be able to throw first level spells all day. That just uh, doesn't work for me. I, I like to I like magic. Of course, again, I will die on this hill. <laughs> I like fancy and magic more than anything else. I love DCC for its weirdness, but Vancian all the way for me. I like the idea, just like counting arrows, you can count spells. I know how many spells I have, and I know how many times I can cast them, and I can use them strategically. That's part of player skill for me. That's just part of the game that I really like. Don't like spell slots. I think they slow down the game. I don't like usage die to see if you lose your spell, because again, now I'm rolling every time I use a spell. That just, again, doesn't feel like it works for me. Um, uh, if I were going to do a system like that, which I think is also for my CRPG, is that you just roll the cast, and if you fail the cast, you lose it, which is basically a very simplified version of DCC. I'm okay with that, I guess, uh, but it can really suck, unless you give your magic user something beyond that spell. 
I'm not one to say that a magic user sucks because I can only cast one spell a day. But if you could only cast one spell a day and there's a chance it might fail, that sucks. So, yeah, I mean, that's that's where I stand on that. I'm just not a, I mean, as I said in the other uh, podcast, I can see times where usage dice might be interesting when you're doing your Oregon Trail thing. But for just day-to-day game mechanics, I just don't think it's that difficult to just track normally. And, uh, you know, and again, if you're playing DCC, there's a lot more to it than just, okay, I'm rolling to see if it casts, either casts or doesn't, do I lose it? You know, because there's power-ups. So that to me is really interesting and something I like about DCC. If you start stripping back the DCC spell system to just, which I know that Professor Dungeon Master likes this, where you just roll to cast, I just think, no. That's not that's not the thing for me. I think magic is something you can rely on, and that's why it's something that you don't get much of. I like... <laughs> see? Even though I contradict myself a lot, I can say that I'm pretty consistent on this one. I like magic to be very powerful, and I like it to be minimal. I want my charm person spell to put that person completely under my control. They are mine, assuming they've failed a saving throw. I want my sleep spell to just drop that whole group of orcs, but I don't want my magic user to cast charm person five times during the session, I don't want them to be throwing sleep spells all around, unless they're a high-level magic user. So, that's kind of how I look at that. Um, that's that's my take on spellcasting. Maybe that's old school or new school or somewhere in the middle. Who knows, right? I think those words get tossed around a bit, but I don't know. I just don't think we need that kind of mechanic. I think it's cool. I love that people are innovating. I love that, pe- you know, the idea of, uh, even though I don't like it from my game, I like the idea of just using the attribute bonus instead of the attribute, Jason. Uh, because for a certain style of play, I think it's a good idea. I like the usage die for a certain style of play. But I think that my point was in that video was that, I think, I never know what my point was. I think my point was that we don't, people often use those mechanics and the reasoning for using them is that they say that new players find it difficult to do this. New players find it difficult for that. But I find that if you put the training wheels on new players right away, they'll never be able to do the more complex things. It's like, let them count arrows. Let them do those things. If they find it's difficult or they forget to count an arrow here and there, they're a new player. I'm not going to worry about it, right? Uh, but if they are, uh, if they're, if you never give them that option, then, you know, like for instance, I think the Black Hack has is, is got a really interesting system, which is Roll Under, which I've been on record saying I don't use Roll Under that much. Uh, but the problem I found with Black Hack is that in play, and I've played a dozen games of Black Hack, or more, and run a bunch, you inevitably, in the heat of the game, forget to do that modifier thing to the roll based on your difference in level or whatever it is. So people are just constantly rolling under their score, and they're not modifying it based on the enemy, which means that it just becomes a boring roll under mechanic. The idea, the concept of it is really good, the way they modify it based on the enemy. It's just something that people forget to do because it's a weird little mechanic that people just don't think of. So go ahead and call in with all the people who play Black Hack all the time and tell me that you don't forget to do it. That's fine, but uh, Black Hack's not my main game, so maybe that's why it happens. But yeah, I've been in well over a dozen games and run probably a half dozen myself, and inevitably sometime during the game that happens. It's usually in some big battle, and then all of a sudden it's over, and everybody's like, oh, we forgot to do this attraction, you know, that kind of thing. So I think every time you mess around with mechanics, and I'm, you know, I do it myself, I think it's it makes the game awesome. I remember sitting there when I first learned D&D and making up my own games and making up my own mechanics and doing all that stuff. And I love that people do that. I do it today. I don't think it's a problem. I'm not bashing people for doing or saying it's bad. But I just don't think the usage die does the thing that people say that it does, which is making the game simpler for new players. I actually think it makes it more complicated. And, you know, the idea that, like, 
a new player will suddenly re- that your player character will know that uh, they should have brought a ten foot pole. That's BS to me. No, they wouldn't have. You didn't, right? You're figuring it out. That's part of the game. It's like being like, oh well, you know, my knight would have known to uh, to move over here to checkmate the the queen or king or whatever to go back to Arlen's. I don't play chess clearly. <laughs> um, oh, I, my my knight would have known that he should have moved that way to checkmate. So really, I should win the game, right? Because my knight would have known that. No, your knight doesn't know that. Your character doesn't know to bring ten foot pole until you learn as a player to do it. Because what equipment you bring is part of player skill. So that's just my opinion there. And I'm, I feel like I'm ranting. I'm probably talking loud too because there's construction going on. So if I if I if I'm suddenly getting excited, I'm just passionate. We'll see. In any case, it's Saturday morning. They're putting a, a new electrical box in my house, which is kind of fun. I normally do. I think I've mentioned this before in, in, in response to Jason and things. I like to do a lot of work around the house myself. I like doing electricity work. I like doing that stuff. But this is a they're messing with 220 today, and I don't want to mess 220. So. I got the guys here doing that. They're doing an awesome job. So uh, I think they're drilling holes right now because I can hear a drill going on. So in any case, enjoy the rest of your uh, Saturday because that's the day I'll put this out. And uh, I'll talk to you soon.